it might not work. I might not win, but it's the best thing I got. So that's what I'm going to do. Because if I'm waiting for a guarantee, I'm going to be waiting for a very long time. I'm not sure why we're sharing this planet with you if all you're doing is what other people tell you to until you die. We need you to make things better. And it's a wonderful side effect that we also end up feeling more alive when we do that. Oh my gosh, we are going to have a lot of fun today. Hey there, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. And I just want to jump right in. I'm too excited. I can't waste any time because today we've got a Path for Growth conversation with none other than Seth Godin. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Seth, but if you're not, he's the author of over 20 best-selling books, including Purple Cow, This is Marketing, Lynchpin. Get this, if you look up Seth on Google, his blog is the first thing that comes up. And here's the real kicker. He has been publishing a blog post every single day without fail for over 20 years. Think about the level of discipline that takes. Think about the level of creativity that demands. Here's here's the big one. Think about the level of commitment needed to blog every single day for over 20 years. This is a guy that is absolutely undeniably committed to doing the work. And what's so cool is that his newest book is called The Practice, Shipping Creative Work, and it really revolves around that topic of committing to getting your work out into the world right now. Not waiting, but doing it right now. Of all the ways that you could describe Seth, I think the best description would be that he is a professional ruckus maker. More than just about anyone that I read, his books and his blog posts, quite frankly, have this way to poke you and make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because they hit you at your core and they tell you what you need to hear. And certainly that is true about this book, The Practice, and about this conversation. So we're going to jump right in with Seth really describing what does it mean to do creative work. Well, what's work? Work is something that we do because we have to. It's not a hobby. And what's creative? Creative means it's something we're not sure is going to work. Because there's only two things you get to do at work, either the reiterating something you've done before, being a cog in the machine, following orders, being coerced into compliance. That's important because we need someone to take the toll on Highway 95 or whatever. Or you are leading, you are creating, you are connecting, and you're not sure it's going to work. That is creative work. It's nothing to do with painting. What I want to argue is that particularly during troubled times, when we look around and we maybe we lose faith or we lose hope, we want things to get better. And we can spend a lot of time fretting about how to make things better, or we can actually make things better. And the only way to make things better, each of us, is to contribute something creative. And that's what the book's about. Does it always involve doing something new or doing something different in a new way? Well, you know, if you're a really well-trained practiced stand-up comic and the 20th time you tell a joke, you're telling it with good timing the same way you did last time. I don't think that's a creative act. And if you are Damien Hurst with your dot paintings and you're painting your 40th dot painting, well, it was creative to commit to painting a hundred of them, but the 40th one 
you could have outsourced that. You could have recorded it, right? So no, I'm not counting that those projects as creative work. Creative work has to have an element of I'm on the hook. I made this and I accept that it might not work. I think almost inherently, I literally, as I start to hear you saying that, my first reaction is excitement, right? Because I get excited around that idea of creativity. And then I start to realize like, oh my gosh, almost inherent in that idea of creativity is this idea of possibility, right? Like there's so many, there's so many things we could create. There's so many things we could do. And that to a degree freaks me out a little bit, Seth, because it's like, okay, well now suddenly I've got all this possibility and I have to choose. So how do we wrestle with choosing the work that is ours to do? So let's talk about stress and choice. Before the lockdown, I was at waiting in line at an ice cream stand in Syracuse, New York, and the line was going very slowly. (laughs) And the person in front of me gets to the front of the line and is unable to choose what flavor she wants. Now, she's not four years old. She's an adult. There is a dozen flavors. If she knew she was the kind of person that was going to have this trouble, she should have tried to make her mind up before, but she couldn't. And she was really unhappy and spent a full four minutes feeling social pressure from everyone behind her to make a decision that you and I would say has no consequences. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You don't know how much I love ice cream, Seth. Right, so but you, would... <laughs> you're, like, you're easily getting rid of Rocky Road and Moose Jaw and all that. You're like, you, you, you're left with five. Whichever one it is, is going to be fine with you. That's true. The reason it's hard when we're doing creative work is not that picking is hard. It's that being responsible is hard. Mm -hmm. That we say there's so much possibility I'm frozen because that's one of the 17 different ways there are to hide. That we can also say I have writer's block. We can also say I'm not going to get picked. We could also say it's not my turn. On and on and on and on and on. And one of them is I don't know how to pick. Well, my answer is, I don't know how to pick either. So I picked anything. And here we are. This is my best shot. Is that right? I mean, when you decided what you were going to do and kind of the arena that you were going to operate in with regard to your blog, with regard to your books, your podcast, all that, I mean, it couldn't have been as simple as just, I'm going to pick anything. Like, how did you land on the angle at which you were going to come at the world, Seth? Anything means from the appropriate set of possible choices, right? Uh, Okay. And so when I look at the books I did as a book packager, you know, if, if you've ever used an emoticon, an emoji, well, I didn't quite invent it, but it's close. Uh, we're on the radio. I won't show you anyway. But I wrote a book called The Smiley Dictionary a really long, long time ago that listed all the smileys and their power. If that book had sold a million copies instead of 40,000 copies, we wouldn't be talking now. I would have done something else. You try things, you try things, and you see what resonates with people. If you go back to the early days of my blog, it took months before I wrote a post that felt to me like one of my posts. It's called the Provincetown Helmet Insight, in which I described how people in on the Cape were choosing to rent helmets when they rode on the bike path. And it got the response I needed. I only had 100 readers at the time. And I was like, oh, I can do this work, more of this. I'm not going to run out. And that's how my blog evolved. But there are plenty of other posts on my blog. They were like, oh, I could try this, but it didn't feel right and it didn't resonate. But at least I tried it. I didn't say, I don't know what to do next. And that's the beauty of a daily blog. It's the beauty of a weekly podcast, which is 
Well, it's not going to ship because it's perfect. It's going to ship because it's tomorrow. What were you writing before that blog post? What was the nature of what you were writing, Seth? Well, so I wrote a post about visiting the Apple store and it was more personal. I wrote posts before that on the previous incarnation of my blog, which is lost to wherever, about my personal journey and the projects I was working on. Because that's what you were supposed to do when you wrote a blog. It was supposed to be your life and what you had for breakfast. I don't write about my life and what I had for breakfast on my blog. I just developed a voice for what it sounded like. And this goes to the idea, which I talk about in the practice, of genre which is you don't have the privilege of doing anything you want. That's a hobby. If you're going to show up as a professional, people are going to have to pick if they're going to spend time with you. And they will not know if you're worth it until after they spend time with you because they haven't mm. seen the movie. They haven't read the book. So you're, therefore, you have to rhyme with something. You have to be able to say, if you like this, we're like that. Right? That's called genre. Genre is not non-creative. Genre is creative. It's the boundaries we get to use to do our work. Mm. So you're writing for, for I don't know how long, but theoretically years, I assume. You're writing every single day, every single day, every single day. And then you have this moment where it clicks and you say, that's it. That's me. And, and people respond to it. Did it occur in a moment where you realized that's the type of stuff I need to be writing? Or was it more gradual over time? You know, no, it was totally gradual over time. And, you know, I've made two giant collections of my blog. They're 800 pages each. And Mm. putting them together, rereading my work for the first time ever, I saw some of the patterns evolving. And even today, it's been 20 years of me blogging. I don't know if a blog post is going to resonate until after I post it. I just don't know. I will write a post and I go, that's it. (laughs) And like nothing, crickets. And then other times I'll be like, at a time and I'll write a post in four minutes and people say it's the best post of the year. So I have no clue. Mm. None. And that kind of goes to what you talk about in the practice with stepping into uncertainty. I know one of the, one of the biggest things that stood out to me whenever I listened to your podcast series, the startup school, I love that series, by the way, if y'all have not listened to that series, you've got to go listen to Seth's lectures from Stanford, but I'll never forget listening to that and you defining what it means to work with purpose. And you said, dancing on the edge of failure is where you find purpose. This seems like it fits into this whole idea of living with the uncertain. Can you can you dive into that and extrapolate a little bit on that, Seth? Sure. Well, most, <clears throat> most people would like to go to work insulated from failure. Mm-hmm. And I use the example of the well-organized, hardworking men and women of the United Auto Workers who went to work every day at Ford Motor Company and did what they were told. And one day, more than 10,000 of them all lost their jobs on the same day. Mm-hmm. They didn't lose their jobs because they were disobedient. They lost their jobs because the designers and marketers at Ford had them building a boring car and people stopped buying it. So their safe path was actually super, super risky. And what they should have done is gone on strike six months earlier, not for wages, but for better cars. They should have gone on strike and said, until you design a better car, we're not going to build them anymore. That would have felt risky, but it would have been safe. And so the startup school... I I recorded it up here in New York over the course of two days for 70 people. And what I tried to help people see in that setting was we are really confused about what's safe and what's risky. Mm. And if it feels risky, 
that might be a sign that you're onto something. So related to that, how, how do we condition ourselves to be able to dance on that edge? Because we know that it feels risky and therefore it, it feels a lot more uncomfortable. And so we're not willing to do it. So how do you condition yourself to constantly live on that edge, Seth? So my answer surprises a lot of people, and I hope folks will find it useful. I go into great detail into this in the, in the practice, which is we got taught that marketing and capitalism is selfish that we should do this, we should hype, we should hustle, we should interrupt, we should make the sale, we should close the sale, we should look out for number one. It's really easy to wear yourself out if that's what you're doing. On the other hand, if you're a lifeguard, maybe not the best lifeguard ever, but you're on duty and someone's drowning, you rescue them. You don't rescue them because you're sure you're the best lifeguard. You rescue them because they need rescuing. And so the conditioning is, do this work because other people need it from you. Do this work because it's a generous act. And if you can condition yourself to show up for other people, that gets to your heart and soul, and you don't end up hiding from it because you're too good a person to hide. And I know one of the things you hit home on pretty clearly, too, in the book, and honestly, in a lot of your work, is the idea that we can oftentimes hide in generality, like generality with regard to who we're going to serve or the change that we're going to make or the type of business that we're trying to build. Can you dive into that a little bit and explain why specificity is so important if you're trying to make art and if you're trying to make work that matters? So in my book, This is Marketing, I coined the phrase, the smallest viable audience which also freaks people out. You're supposed to have the biggest <laughs> possible audience. No, yeah. you're not. Smallest viable audience. 99% of the people in the United States have never read a word I have written. 99% fine with me. That's still 3 million people left. And I know who those people are and what they need and want. If I tried to be Heinz Ketchup, I'd be nothing, right? That what we have to do is say, this is for a very small group of people. And I want to be on the hook to do something very specific for them. So if we look at the paintings of Jackson Pollock, Jackson Pollock had a brother, and you never heard of him. His brother was also a painter named Charles Pollock. Charles Pollock painted just like his teacher, Thomas Hart Benton. We don't need any more Thomas Hart Benton. We had plenty of it. So by being a general painter, Charles Pollock failed. By being a specific painter, Jackson Pollock changed everything. I don't know much about the history of Jackson Pollock, but my assumption is, is that when he started, he started small and he started with probably a bunch of people that did not resonate with what he did. Is that the case? And, and if so, like say that we're trying to take the approach of Jackson Pollock, how do we know that, okay, this is the good type of small and this is the good type of people not liking what we're doing versus this just means that I'm creating something that people don't care about that isn't actually solving a problem. Or even worse, I'm not even good at painting things. Like I, I'm, I'm not a Jackson Pollock. How do, you, how do you distinguish that, Seth? Several pieces to that. I'll do them in reverse order. Okay. You get good at painting. You're not born good at painting. Hmm. Vincent van Gogh was not born able to do abstract impressionism in oils. And if he had been born 100 years earlier or 100 years later, he wouldn't have been a painter. Mm. You're not born with any of these things. These are skills. You can earn them if you want them. Number two, monetary is not the point here, but let's use monetary as an example. You could have bought 
a $50 million Jackson Pollock painting for $5,000 if you knew what you were doing on Long Island in the 1940s and 50s because he was giving them away. He was giving them away because like every single artist of any kind, he had 10 fans at the beginning. That's all. That's all you get, 10. How do you know your work's any good? What do those 10 people do? If those 10 people tell other people, now you might be onto something commercially. If they don't, here's the truth. You're probably not that good and you probably need to get better. And what good means is up to everyone. It's not up to me. But people telling other people is how you grow, not hyping your way and having Oprah call you and getting picked. Hmm. We make an impact because people tell other people. Okay. And then when you get to that idea of, okay, I'm reaching 10 people, they're not telling people about it, so I need to get better. Is it is it strictly better in the eyes of those 10 people or how do you define what better is? So I can go down exactly. such a rabbit hole because this, I mean, this is where my mind is right now and I'm struggling so hard because I'm trying to define what this podcast looks like, quite frankly. Right. And, and I'm like constantly having this wrestle. It's like, okay, do I only listen to the ratings and reviews or do I only listen to my heart and just have the conversation that I want to have? And it feels like this dichotomy, but maybe that's not right. No, it's exactly right. So we'll talk about the podcast specifically. But better does not mean more like a camera or more like a computer. If Jackson Pollock was a better figurative painter, he would not have been better at his craft. Mm. And we have this industrial mindset of what better means. So, you know, Zach is doing a great job of making your podcast sound terrific. I record my podcast in the shower in my office by myself, pressing (laughs) a button and just talking. So there doesn't seem to be a correlation between how much engineering goes into a podcast and how many people listen to it. Yeah, We just know that we can control that. So we try to. Now, if we think about podcasts that have grown into themselves in scale and impact, something like 99% Invisible is a great example. Mm-hmm. Roman is terrific. His show is great. Where did all the listeners come from? Like maybe a million or more people listen to every episode. Where did they come from? They didn't come from Roman calling them at home during dinner with a recording saying, hi, it's Roman Mars, you should my podcast. They came because people who loved the podcast felt like their status, power, influence, and happiness went up if they got other people to listen to the podcast. Why would that happen? Well, if you listened to his episode about the tube dancing tube man that you see it used car lots that goes back and forth and back and forth, you want to talk to someone about that episode. It's just extraordinary, but you can't talk to someone about the episode if they didn't listen to it. So you say to someone, listen to this episode so I can talk to you about it because I can't sleep tonight until I talk to someone about the dancing tube band. And so he built podcasts that people felt better after they talked about. That is what better means if we're talking about growing a podcast. It is not about following your heart because that's a hobby. It is about serving your listeners. Which listeners? That's the second part of your question. Listeners who get the joke you're trying to tell, Mm -hmm. right? You are not trying to get Italian-speaking people to listen to this podcast because it's not in Italian. You don't feel (laughs) bad about that. You're just saying people who only speak Italian are not welcome. Totally cool. Who is welcome? Who specifically? What do they believe? What do they want? What change are they seeking to make in the world? Are you the one and only, the idiosyncratic, peculiar voice? 
who can help them get to where they want to go. Because if you are, then they pick you. And then if it helps their career or their life, they will get other people to listen as well. But they're going to do it because it helps them, not because it helps Alex. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. So extrapolating that to the leaders that we work with, we say we work with impact driven leaders and it, typically it's people that are, that are already, they have a proven track record. So they've got results, but it's not results for the sake of results. It's results for the sake of impact. Industries run the gamut, right? We've got pastors of churches. We've got uh, general contractors of construction companies. We've got people that run marketing agencies kind of across the board. But the thing that they all seem to have in common as of right now is that they seek and desire to make an impact. One of the things that we're seeing a lot of right now is that a lot of them are focused on hiring and there's a lot of talent in the marketplace right now that's looking for a job. And so they're saying, okay, how do we make sure not we just go out and recruit the right people? How do we attract the right people? It seems like there's a parallel here in terms of knowing what you're about and what you stand for. Right. So first of all, the, the thing that you're doing that's very smart is you're not saying we are building an enterprise for everyone, nor are you saying we are building an enterprise based on someone's demographics or what they look like. You're saying people who want to go where we are going are happy to come with us to go there, mm. right? If you're the kind of person that wants X, we have X, let's go. And so the thing that defines your customers are they're your customers, and you are clear about what it means to be one of your customers, and you should waste no time persuading someone who isn't one of those people that they should want to be one of those people, right? So when permission marketing came out, spammers, hustlers, hypesters said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I can't make a lot of money in a short time with this. And I was like, you're right. See ya. Not for you. Because mm. I don't have time to persuade you before you read the book to read the book right? If, if this doesn't resonate with you, you're, you're speak Italian. We'll see you later. <laughs> yeah. All right. But now back to the hiring thing. So years ago when I was building my in first internet company and we built it before the World Wide web. So we were really early. I had a meeting with a guy at Disney and Disney was just starting their uh, web thing. It was a total failure. They lost hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> and I'm sitting with the guy in his office who runs it. And on his desk is a stack of like three inches thick of paper. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, those are resumes. He had gotten hundreds of unsolicited resumes from super high-powered, talented, hardworking people for a business that didn't have a good business model that had proved nothing. And I was struggling. I, I once ran a full-page ad in the New York Times to end up hiring 50 people. And... I thought about that a lot. And I realized being able to say to your in-laws, I got a job at Disney, was different than being able to say to your in-laws, I got a job working for this flaky startup outside of New York City. <laughs> and it didn't matter that we were onto something and that it was working and everything else because it's too hard to talk about that. So a lot of small businesses that are purpose-driven, focused, have trouble recruiting the talent they want because they don't have the status in the marketplace to make it easy to tell your spouse, to make it a job you're looking forward to. So if we look at you know the recruiting that they do at Basecamp, it's fascinating because they've done a really good job of making it a prestigious thing to seek out for a small circle of people. Yeah. And it gets right back to the smallest viable audience. 
So if I'm a general contractor in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, there's only 2,000 people I care about that I want to recruit. So figure out who those 2,000 people are and then figure out how to message to them a story that they will want to share, how to make it so that your existing employees have a huge stake in helping you recruit because they're the best recruiters you've got anyway, right? So maybe it's a cash bounty, but I don't think so. But what do I get if I do the awkward thing of telling my friend who's super talented to come apply for a job where we work? Because if I get something... It, and again, it doesn't have to be a monetary prize. I'm much more likely to do it than if you just say, hey, we're hiring. I'll go mm. find it's work. I don't want to talk about that. But it almost, I'm thinking of this through the lens of path for growth now. And it almost, for me to take that strategy and that approach to hiring, it almost requires that I abandon the idea that every talented person has to work here, right? I have to, like, I have to abandon the belief that it's like, if you're talented, you should be working here. And if you're not working here, you're wrong because we can't be for everyone. Right. Exactly right. The more specific and peculiar you are, the more likely it is that you will end up with enrollment. You know, if you ask somebody which of the armed forces is the most noteworthy, most people pick the Marines. And the Marines are noteworthy because it's really difficult. It's difficult to get in, it's difficult to stay in, and they're difficult people, right? So it's almost for nobody. And that's why they get away with what they get away with, because it's almost for nobody. Mm. I love that you use the word peculiar. I, I think that one of the things that I always think about whenever, whenever I think about your writing and your work, Seth, the word that always comes to mind, and I think it's related to that word peculiar is the word quirky. And I hope, I hope that's a compliment to you. I, I think I consider quirky a compliment, but quirky is not at all what the practice is about. Quirky is a brand signifier for me. I could be quirky in private, but my persona in public is advanced by me being quirky in public. I used to see the quirkiness and my almost instant thought was that guy is so comfortable in his own skin. And the word I would use is he's so confident. He's confident in who he is. And the distinction that you make in the book that has honestly rattled me a little bit is going between confidence and, and saying trust. So is there something related in here with regard to that topic of trust? A little bit. And I think this is worth pursuing. So let's go at it for a little bit. You can be generously creative. And nobody knows you, the person made the work. Yeah. Right. You can be the person who dared to get rid of credit cards at Arco and lower the price of gas. This was like 40 years ago. No, I have no idea who, who, who did that, but they made a difference in that organization and for a lot of their customers. Quirky doesn't help you there, right? Mm. That quirky is a specific subset. And what it says is, this person who's about to appear on stage, no one else could give this presentation but him. Mm. And I might not agree with everything he says, but it's certainly going to be interesting to watch him say it, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's right. That's just a choice I made because I am naturally quirky, but I could hide it if I wanted to. I did at the beginning of my career poorly, but I did. Whereas confidence is you're sure it's going to work. Mm. So when Joe Namath guaranteed that the New York Jets were going to win the Super Bowl. That was confidence. 
And the problem with that, if we're going to use sports, and I don't like sports, but it's a good analogy, <laughs> is all these professional athletes who are confident, at least half of them are wrong. And at a tournament like Wimbledon, almost all of them are wrong because they're confident they're going to win and they don't. So confidence is a trap, a form of reassurance. And the alternative is to say, I trust that I can do my best in this situation. That's all I got is mm -hmm. trust in the process. It might not work. I might not win. I might not double my subscriber rate, but it's the best thing I got. So that's what I'm going to do. Because if I'm waiting for a guarantee, I'm going to be waiting for a very long time. What is the process that we should be trusting in or how do we define the process that we should be trusting in to reach that state of contentment? Okay. The process is to understand the domain, to understand what the people we serve, who they are and what they want. And then in non-fatal ways, explore what's working for them and what's not, and then do that more. Mm. Right. And you might get lucky like the monkeys and then you have a TV show for a year or two, or you might be persistent like Bob Dylan winning a Nobel Prize and get to do it for 50 years. The difference is Dylan gets booed off stage every few years, right? When he went electric, he got booed off stage. When he went gospel, he got booed off stage and go down the list because he was willing to do these non-fatal experiments and figure out if he wanted to keep doing them or not. And in his biography, autobiography, which is mostly made up, he tells the story of instructing his promoter to book a three-year tour going back to the same cities all three years in a row. And the promoter said, don't do that. That's really foolish. You got to go around and pick up what you can pick up. Dylan said, no, here's what's going to happen. All my old fans will come the first year. They'll hate the show because it's electric. Most of them won't come back the second year, but if they do, they'll hate the show. By the third year, I'll have my fans. So mm. I want to do this to clean out the old and bring in the new. And what a gutsy thing to do. I mean, he might be a crazy person, but that was a gutsy thing to do because now he gets to make the music he wants for the people who want to hear it. I swear, probably 90% of what I know about Bob Dylan comes from you and Brian Koppelman. The two of you <laughs> have taught me so many lessons on Bob Dylan, which is, yeah, y'all should totally take credit Bri for it. Brian knows way more detail. He knows <laughs> the order of the songs on Blood on the Tracks. I don't know. <laughs> uh, okay, so because it seems like Dylan airs on the side, based on the way I've heard y'all talk about him, it seems like uh, Dylan airs on the side of I'm going to do the art that I feel called to create and the art that I want to create. And the people that follow along are my customers. And those that don't like electric, those that don't like gospel, it just means they're not my customers. So, how, I mean, is that a fair assessment? Mostly, except okay. Dylan's lying about one part. He says that a ghost writes the songs mm. and that. It's just coming from the muse. No, what he's, he's a very calculating individual and he has calculated a journey forward. He just, it may be in his own head thinks it's this magical thing that's happening. It's not, he's as calculating as I am. And he's looking at the world and saying, yeah, this is going to cost me in the short run, but in the long run, I'm going to get to do what I want. And what he wants is the freedom to create a, a certain way without accepting compromise from people he doesn't like and trust. Mm. And if you 
accept too much compromise in exchange for an audience, you're a hack. And there's nothing wrong with being a hack, but you should know going into it that that's what you've chosen to do. So that the, the late night TV shows hosts are hacks, right? Even the ones who seem really creative. If you're going to stay on network TV night after night after night, you've got to please the audience and the advertisers. You don't get to say whatever pops into your head. And if Bob Dylan switched to opera for four weeks, and then he switched to square dancing for four weeks, sooner or later, there'd be no one left because you're on a spectrum and you're here to serve other people. You're still a lifeguard, but you get to pick who you're going to rescue. Mm. As you talk about that, the the kind of case study that seems very relevant right now, especially for this arena, is is Joe Rogan, right? And and I mean, probably the the, mo- the predominant podcast on Apple just sold exclusively to Spotify. I think it was something like seventy million dollars or something like that. And there were there were people that were commenting on all of his stuff and said, "So pumped for you! This is awesome! The next the next generation of Rogan Nation is coming." And then there were people that said, "You're a sellout." I can't believe you did this. Uh, how do you absorb that decision? I know I don't know if you know Joe or not, but how do you absorb that decision? Just reading about that deal and probably what he processed, because I feel like Joe's secret sauce. The reason why so many people flock to him is his authenticity, is the fact that he's so real on air. Yeah, there's no such thing as authenticity. It's completely <laughs> overrated. Because if Joe woke up one day feeling like he should act like an investment banker. And, you know, he doesn't get to do that. He has to rhyme with himself. Mm. That if you go to see somebody in concert, you don't want them to, to, to air their true feelings. You want them to sing that song like they mean it. And if you need ear surgery, you want your ear surgeon to do her very best work, not act a certain way because she had a fight on her way to work that day, right? We don't really want authenticity. We want consistency. And the people who are saying we love Joe because you're authentic, they don't know him. They don't know what he's doing in the afternoon. Like he might live in a fancy mansion and never smoke drugs on his own. Who knows, right? That's not, he's a performer. It's acting, right? And, you know, if we're reading a novel, it's fiction. So, yeah, you're putting on a show for people. There's a quote in the practice I've been trying to sell out, but nobody's buying. Mm. And at some level, People who create with generosity are doing it because they want the audience to get what it wants. And so when Howard Stern sold out to Sirius XM for a quarter of a billion dollars, or when Joe Rogan sells out, good for them because they're entitled to do what they need to do with the product that they made. That's not outside. That That is within the commitment that they made to their audience, which is subscribe to this podcast and I will perform for you in a genre sensitive way on a regular basis and I won't waste your time. And if I do waste your time, you can unsubscribe from the podcast. But we live in a culture where there are also games played with capital all the time. And you can choose not to play those games, but I hope Joe Rogan takes $50 million and gives it to Brian Stevenson, and we get more justice in the world. Because that Mm. would be better than not selling out his show. Mm, I love that. So this idea of creative work, is it something that you think 
it would bring more life to every individual if they engage with it and if they took the path that you're advocating for, Seth? I'm not sure why we're sharing this planet with you if all you're doing is what other people tell you to until you die. Like, what, what do we need? Don't use up, you know, don't create carbon. We don't need that. We need you to make things better. That if everyone in our culture, if everyone in our community commits to making things better, the community gets better. And it's a wonderful side effect that we also end up feeling more alive when we do that. So I don't see the downside, except that we have to live with the fear. We have to live with the knowledge that we might not have a deniable excuse. So, you know, nobody runs the Boston Marathon expecting to not get tired. Mm -hmm. If you're halfway through and you start getting tired, you don't say, oh, I got tired. I should stop. You know that it's part of the deal. And part of the deal of what it means to be alive is to see your fellow citizens and do something for them. And part of what it means to be alive is to experience that flow that you get from doing something that might not work that feels like you're making a contribution. So yeah, I'm a missionary about this because all the people I know who have found a glimmer of this want to do it more. What is the greatest blocker that they will experience if they do commit to engaging in the practice and engaging in creative work? Well, before we get to the blocker, what will happen is you will fail. You will mm -hmm. fail and fail and fail and fail. And people will say they don't approve of your work. And people will say you have no right and you will feel like an imposter. And all of those things have to happen. There are no guarantees with this. That's the purpose of this work is there are no guarantees. And then a story will develop in your head. And the question is, can you embrace that story or are you going to run away from it? And it's a story of possibility but it's also a story of potential downside. And dancing with that is, is the point. So in the movie Rounders, they quote Papa Walenda, who may or may not have said, life is on the wire. Meaning, being on the high wire is the point. Everything else is just the in-between time. And we now live in this world. It's not 1800. We're not living in the dark where you have a keyboard, you're connected to a billion other people. There's the wire. If you have something to say, if you have something to contribute, you can. No one's stopping you except you. Mm. What is the challenge and the encouragement that you would give people who are making that commitment, setting out on this journey, setting out on this path, Seth? I am well aware that this is not for most people. And if it's not for you, I totally get it. And if it is for you, and you don't need this book, that's fine with me too. I'm not in the business to sell books. On the other hand, if you look around and see someone who might need a light turned on for them, I hope you'll figure out how to turn on a light for them. Because if you're not going to turn it on, who is? I love that. Well, Seth, I think the thing that I always appreciate about you uh, and about everything that you write and about everything that you put out into the world is the fact that you live in such alignment with the message that you're sending out. That's certainly true for this book. So y'all, I would tell you the practice shipping creative work is the book. It's now out if you're listening to this podcast. And so you need to go get it. You need to read it and then you need to commit to it because it's absolutely uh, in alignment with everything Seth's talking about today. Seth, we're grateful for you. Thanks so much for your time. You're great. Thanks for taking the time. 
Before we close out today, I wanted to read you an excerpt from the practice. Just like all of Seth's other writing, the incredible thing about this book is that it almost demands that you be thoughtful. I mean, you cannot read this book and sit back and just say, okay, I'm going to skim this and not really think deeper about the concepts that he's presenting. Like he has this incredible capacity for in under a page, sometimes even in under a paragraph, making you read something that you just have to sit back and say, well, I'm going to be chewing on that for about the next year of my life. And that's what this one does. It's number 89. It's called, it's not a paradox. It's not a paradox. But it's not easy either. Go too far to please the audience and you become a hack. Lose your point of view, lose your reason for doing the work, become a hack. Focus only on the results, become a hack. On the other hand, if you ignore what you see and simply create for yourself, you've walked away from empathy. If there is no change, there is no art. The professional understands the fine line between showing up with a generous vision and showing up trying to control the outcome. The best way through the paradox is by working. Ship creative work on a schedule, without attachment, and without reassurance. It's just so good. Uh, I'm so grateful to Seth. I mean, the fact that he was willing to, to spend time with us for this podcast, just incredibly, outrageously generous. And I would tell you that if you're looking to move forward, if you're looking to be challenged, if you're looking to grow, if you're looking to be a better version of yourself next year than you are today, then you need to get this book, The Practice. It's an incredible source of support and encouragement, but it's also, quite frankly, a little bit of a kick in the butt to make sure that you're constantly stretching and expanding yourself as a leader so that others may benefit and others may be served. So you can go to trustyourself.com and get the book there. We'll also put the link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much for uh, committing your attention and time to this episode of the podcast. We're so grateful to you. And hey, like we've told you before, we really, really, really appreciate when you share, when you subscribe, when you rate and review these episodes. I read all of those reviews. We are so appreciative for the way that y'all have been sharing this on social media and with the people that you know. The podcast audience is growing, and we know that that's because of you. So just know for me personally, but also from our entire team, we really, really appreciate you being part of this mission that is Path for Growth at the ground floor. Know that we're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.